following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, friends, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. I've titled this message, Christ's Message to the Church in Ephesus. Christ's Message to the Church in Ephesus. Before we begin, I'm sure you're wondering why I'm up here. Justin just started a mini-series on Proverbs chapter 4. And, um, well, Justin had a busy week. I had some free time on my hands. Uh, My wife and son are out of town right now they're coming back this morning and so i offered to cover for this week hopefully to not take too much away from his time in proverbs 4 so you're going to have to still remember all of that next week when we come back but i hope this helps to build upon it in some capacity and so i just thank you uh, for being here with us this morning and now it is with a great pleasure that i bring you the word of our living God from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Friends, hear our Lord speak. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves Apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as you know, we just came out of an 11-week study in 2 Timothy, wherein we saw the pastor-elder of the church in Ephesus being written to by Paul. Timothy was called upon to be a faithful leader of the church in the midst of various trials and struggles, knowing that they were bound to happen. Ephesus was not a pretty place, per se. We're going to look at that in this text a little bit, but Ephesus was a paganistic city. It was a city filled with immorality and sin, and Paul tells Timothy, you will indeed suffer. There's no way around it. The people in the church of Ephesus will indeed suffer. There's no way around that. And now, 
as our pastor Justin started last week, we're looking at Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. A real look into the heart, the inner man, where the true man lives, you might say. The heart is a special place. It's the man to a variety of things, both good and evil. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart shows us what we truly treasure. It shows us what's really important to us. It shows what we love. It shows who we are. So as we come to our passage today, we're kind of getting the best of both of those worlds. Seeing what Timothy was being encouraged to teach and seeing the need to guard the heart. Seeing the need to make sure that the heart is put at a a front point in our lives. That it's built up continuously. That it stays strong. That we don't lose sight. We're going to see just that with this church in Ephesus. It is looking into the hearts of each of the individuals and seeing where the people are as a whole. As we saw in verse 7 there that we just read, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear. He's talking to individuals as he talks to the church as a whole. And he says, your heart has an issue. There's a problem here. Jesus commends them for many good things, but he says, you've lost the main thing. You've lost this love that you had at first. The priority was that they loved Christ rightly. But they've lost this. Unfortunately, as we'll see, there's a way out from that. The passage provides us with this glorious and yet terrifying reality that our Lord penetrates the outer man. He looks inward to the heart. This is why... He expands upon the commands, right? He says, it's not just enough to say, I didn't commit adultery. I didn't do the act. He says, your heart desired it. Your heart was lustful. It's not just that you didn't commit murder. Your heart had anger. And that was enough. You've broken the command. He observes not just our actions, but he observes the heart where the true man is. That's where, he says, you need to improve. That's where you need to grow. That's where you need to maintain. And by so doing, as we saw in 1 Timothy, godly belief leads to godly behaviors. By rightly viewing God, we naturally act accordingly. So for our text today, I've given five points under this title of Christ's message for the church in Ephesus. First, we will see the commencement in verse 1. Second, we will see the commendation in verses 2 and 3. And I also put verse 6 in there. Third, we will see the confrontation in verse 4. Fourth, we will see the correction in verse 5. And finally, we will see the call in verse 7. So let us start. Verse 1, the commencement. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each of these churches are addressed through the angel. There's seven churches listed here as we saw. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
And each one is addressed by their angel. But what's meant by that? How do we understand who is this angel that is being spoken to or written to? How do we understand that? Well, there's been a few ways that this is put forward. The Greek word here is angelos, which we naturally hear and you say, oh, angel, angelos, right? Has angel in the word. But that word actually does mean messenger. And by implication, some have argued that this was written to the pastor because he is a sort of messenger to the church. Another understanding is that it's actually an angel that oversees the church in some capacity. And it seems like this would be the most likely response. There's a few reasons for that. One, the word is not used in reference to pastor, elder, and other places. Angelos is almost exclusively used in reference to angels. Additionally, when angel is used in Revelation, it's always talking about a heavenly being, someone who is in the heavenly courts. So it's pretty safe to believe that the author wouldn't just use it one way once and then go off to use it a whole different way the rest of the, the, rest of the verses in this book. Additionally, we find similar language in other prophetic and apocalyptic books like Daniel. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, At that time shall arise Michael, the angel, the great prince who has charge over your people. It seems that the use of these angels is that they represent some earthly reality in the heavenly realms. So based on these things, it seems that we are indeed talking about a real angel who represents the church in some capacity before Christ. And he says to this angel in the church of Ephesus, Ephesus is, and I said we we're going to do a little kind of quick rundown of what is Ephesus, where is this, what do we know about it? Give you a little refreshment, because I think the last time we really talked about Ephesus was back in 1 Timothy over a year ago. It was a great and world-famous city on the west coast of Asia. It was a cultural and religious and financial kind of hub. It was a de facto capital for that area, for the region. Everyone would travel through there as a, a mainstay, because it was such a large city. It's like going in America through L.A. or through New York or through Atlanta. It's like if you're going to travel anywhere, you're going to go through these large cities to get to the next place. It's well known for its worship of the goddess Artemis. She was known as a fertility goddess, and therefore she was worshipped by people participating in immoral sexual acts. That was how they worshipped her. Remember, there was a temple built to her, and it was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was so magnificent, 127 pillars built to this goddess, each roughly 60 feet tall, adorned with various sculptures and gems and stones and precious metals. The temple was so magnificent that people would travel into the city, they would look upon this temple and they would join in with all those worshiping by saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They would see it and they would say, she must be really great because look what they did for her. Look what they did for her. However, Ephesus was not simply just a pagan city. It was a city that was filled with all kinds of satanic rituals and practices. They were into all sorts of sorcery and superstitions and magic. These were all strong influencers on the culture of the people. The people looked to the magicians and the sorcerers to tell them all about a variety of things, to do magnificent works and to practice all sorts of dark arts. 
So this is Ephesus. This is the city wherein this church resides. A horrible place. Filled with all kinds of evil and debauchery. So how did a church get there? How did we even see this happen? How would a church be planted in such an evil and and wicked place? Well, we see the church was founded by Paul with the help of Aquila and Priscilla. Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and sailed for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancaria, he had his hair cut for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And then we see another man that appears on the scene right after that, Apollos, who preached. And he said, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So you have Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, which laid some form of foundation for what would come with Paul's extended ministry there. Paul comes back to Ephesus during his third missionary journey, and he spends roughly three years there. And it was a powerful three years. It's incredible because we see throughout the biblical text, you have sorcerers or magicians or worshipers of some evil pagan god. And God, our God, works all the more. You see this happen with Moses, right? Moses goes up against the sorcerers of Pharaoh. And he says, everything you think you can do, I can do better. I can do more. My God is powerful above all. Elijah, as he goes against the prophets of Baal, right? He does something that they cannot do. And we get the same story here. Paul is in Ephesus, and in Acts 19, he talks about how just his handkerchief, just his apron being touched was causing people to be healed. You have the incredible story of the magicians that went and burned their books publicly in repentance, acknowledging that, they are, that they, everything they had worshipped was false. Everything that they had practiced was wicked. And Ephesus, as you know, had Timothy... Paul's child in the faith, are, he was serving as this elder pastor in the church. You had other faithful men like Onesiphorus and Tychicus, who both served there as well. And according to church history, John is believed to have settled there before his exile in Patmos and then returned to Ephesus. So talk about a group of believers, right? So he's writing this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus has been built up. It's got some strong men that have led it over time. Some that we would say are greats of the faith. I mean, Paul wrote a large majority of the New Testament. John, a well-known author of the New Testament's letters. The author here. The church in Ephesus was fortunate. That faithful men who had led it. That men who were standing up against various trials. They were in a city filled with evil and and sin, and yet they were standing firm in this gospel. So what does he say? 
What does he say to the angel of this church? What is he talking about this church in Ephesus that has been built up? He says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who is that man? Who is the one that he sees that is holding these seven stars in his right hand? What's well, the Lord Jesus? Remember back in chapter 1, at verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the one that he says a little later, that he sees him walking as a one, as a son of man in the midst of the lampstands. And notice he says he's holding on to these seven stars. And we saw earlier that the seven stars are the seven angels. But there's something special just about this. And I just want to pause here. He's holding on to these seven stars in his right hand. It seems almost insignificant. But there's something special about holding them in his right hand. It symbolizes authority. The right hand is the place of authority. The right hand is the place of power. Christ says he was, given a, he was given authority and he was seated at the right hand of the Father. The right side, this right hand is the place of authority. And he says, I have authority over these angels of the seven churches. And by extension, I have authority over those churches as well. To hold on to in the Greek is not just simply grasping. It's not as simple as me grabbing onto this. It's saying, I have authority. I'm chief and master of. And as he does this, he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is holding the seven stars as he walks through these lampstands, which are the churches. He's in the midst of the seven churches. That means that Christ is actually present in the church in Ephesus. He's observing them. He's looking out and he's seeing them. He's seeing their work. He's seeing their gatherings, their interactions with one another, their interactions with the outside world. However, even more importantly than all of that, he's seeing their hearts. He's looking within. It's not some absent God that has forgotten his people, but he's a God who is with his people. And so church, the question for you is, what does this mean for us? Christ is present with his people in his church. He walks in the midst of them. What does that mean for us? He knows all things. He can penetrate all of the showmanship that you do. He can penetrate all of the showmanship that I do. He looks at the heart. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient, right? He is all in every place and he can see everything. He knows everything. So my question is, what does Christ see now? He's looking in the midst of the church. What does he see now? What does he see about your coming and your going? What does he see in your worship and in your prayer and in your singing? We get to see what he sees in Ephesus here, but I invite you to consider that for yourself. What does the Lord see? What does he see when he looks upon you, when he looks into your heart? Turn with me to verses Two and three here as we look at the commendation. Our second point is we get to see what Christ saw in the church of Ephesus as he was in the midst of them. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Christ kind of mentions three areas that he observes of the Ephesians' work. He says their works, right, their efforts, their discernment, 
their ability to discern falsehoods from truth, and then their endurance, their ability to put up with many things. Let's start at the beginning here. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I just love that start. He says, I know. It's not a question. He's not asking you. He says, I know. I'm in there. I see it. I know everything that you're doing. And he starts off by saying, your works, your actions, your deeds, your efforts. Ephesus was a working church. It was an active church. It wasn't a church that had neglected to meet. It wasn't a church that had given up on doing the tasks that were at hand. People had jobs and they did their jobs. They were working an active church. They were meeting regularly, even though they were probably combating a variety of struggles and trials. He says, I know your toil. The Greek word points to this intense labor under a series of struggles and troubles and trials. Ephesus being this hotbed for paganism and satanic rituals. And the Christians there were toiling. They were working hard under the pressure that was upon them. They were diligent. They were known for their hard labor for Christ. They were not ones that were persuaded to just give in easily. They were a church that worked. And he says, your patient endurance. I know your patient endurance. Perseverance in trying times. A courageous acceptance of hardship and struggle. The Ephesians remained faithful to the Lord, even in the midst of everything going on. Did you notice the three first three things here? They all seem to have a similar ring. It's work. It's Toil, it's endurance, it's all the things that they're doing. It's their activities. And he says, I commend you for those things. You've labored well. You're doing good work. You're doing what needs to be done. You haven't just given up. And then he goes on to commend them for another area. He says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The Ephesian church was sensitive to sin. They held a certain standard for purity, for holiness. They held a certain standard for doctrine and actions. It's everything that we studied in First and Second Timothy, right? Addressing false teaching. And they said, there needs to be godly behavior. And, that, and Paul writes to Timothy saying, that comes from godly understanding, a godly belief. They were doing really well on addressing sin and avoiding evil and avoiding things that were not right. They took it seriously when Paul had written to them in Ephesians and said, leave no opportunity for the devil. They took it as not just battling anger, but in general, do not leave any opportunity for the devil. For he was active in the city around them. And he says, but have have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The Ephesian church was a discerning church. Remember, throughout 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul addresses that, right? False teaching is a big issue. You're living in a city where false teaching is just all over the place. We can say that's much like America today in ways. Living in a World and a, and a country that is filled with everything you can imagine, a sort of vanity fair. You can have anything you want at your fingertips. And so 
the battle that you have to face is addressing false teaching, addressing false doctrines, addressing things that are going against the biblical truths. Paul calls out false teachers and urges Timothy to stand fast in that truth, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, and then he calls on the church to do so. The Ephesians were doing this well. They were seeing falsehoods and they were calling it out. Back in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, and this was just a, more of a drive to address false teaching. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you, to admonish everyone with tears. They took it seriously. And we see an example of this in verse 6. This is where incorporating verse 6 into this. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Ephesian church saw false teaching in the Nicolaitans and they said, no, get out. What was that false teaching? Well, we don't have exactly what it is, but if you'll turn down in verses 14 and 15 of Revelation 2, he says, but I have a few things against you. This is in his letter to Pergamum. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put up a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you, you have some who hold the te uh, teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't really understand for sure if they were practicing some of those things in verse 14, but if so, they were practicing a sort of antinomianism, a sort of sense in which, and that's a big word, you're saying, well, what does that mean, right? A group that would say, well, I'm saved by grace, and so I can just go on doing what I want to do. I'm saved by grace, and so I can keep on sinning because, well, grace can abound that way. It's fine. I don't have to worry about following any kind of law. I don't have to worry about being obedient. I can just go on living. However, we know that's not the case, right? For a sign of salvation is obedience to Christ. A sign that the grace has been poured upon you is a desire to then honor him in obedience. The Ephesians opposed them. They opposed this Nicolaitan group. And Christ says, you hated their works and I hate them also. This is a good thing. They had a proper response and discernment to this group. To all false teaching. And now we come into this third section. He says, I understand your patient endurance. He says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. As the church is going through these things, as they're working day in and day out to keep this church alive, to keep the ministry alive, to continue to support the church. As they're battling against false teachings like the Nicolaitans and all of these worshipers of this goddess Artemis and all of the false teachers that we see in First and Second Timothy, Alexander and Hymenaeus. They've lost everything. They've lost family and friends. They've had to endure so much. And Christ says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up. Not for your own glory, not for your own good. Because for what their good would be is to give in. To say, I can't take it anymore. 
I've lost everything. I've lost friends. I've lost family. Lost jobs. And they said, but I'm going to bear up for the sake of Christ, for the namesake. And he says, and you have not grown weary. They've held on to this eternal hope. They've not yielded under the weight of persecutions and struggles. They have not given way to disappointments. No, they've looked upon Christ and they said, I know that he lives. I will keep on in this. The Ephesian church is sounding pretty good, doesn't it? If you were to just stop there, just read through that section, verse 3, and you stop, man, they sound great. Sounds like a church you want to be a part of, right? Because they're enduring, they're working hard. In the midst of persecution, they keep fighting. They're discerning, they're keeping doctrinal purity. They're avoiding false teaching. They're testing everything against the teaching of the apostles. And anything that goes against it, they're saying, get out of our church, stay away from us. You wicked men, you, you workers of iniquity, get away. Sounds like a great church. I can't imagine. We, we live in such a comfortable society today. Our persecution seems so minimal in comparison to what they were experiencing. These people were being abused on a regular basis. Just going out, preaching the gospel, they would be abused and heckled and thrown out of places. If we were to just transport ourselves back in time go to Ephesus, look upon that church, we'd say, thumbs up, you got it good. You're doing really well here. But this is where the Lord comes in. And he says, your outward looks are great. Let's look inside. Let's look at your heart. Notice verse four, this, our next point, the confrontation. He says, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've talked and he's commended them for all the things they've done. All the work that they put forward. All the efforts that have gone into it. But he says, but I'm not concerned so much with all of that. Those are all good things and I'm thankful for them. And I, I want you to continue on in them. But something more important has happened. You've lost this love that you had at first. Notice he says they have abandoned it to leave or to go away from. This is not something that they just lost all of a sudden. It wasn't like they just woke up one day and it was like, where did the love go? Where did the love that I had for the Father go? No, this is something that they have forsaken and departed and walked away from slowly but surely, incrementally. And what is that first love? What is he talking about? Well, it can mean a few things. First, it can mean, obviously, the love for the Lord. It can mean the love for one another. It can mean the love for the lost souls that were in Ephesus. Specifically, I think he is talking about a love for the Lord. And proper love for the Lord impacts how we love one another, how we love the world as a whole, the lost souls in our area. The church in Ephesus, the, the believers there, had fallen into the very common trap. And I know we've all been there. Carrying out Christian duties and actions while their love is slowly dwindling out. They've been battling false teaching. They've been 
battling all the false doctrines around them. They've probably been out willingly calling things evil that were evil. They weren't afraid to do it. But they had forsaken the love that they had at first. They were caught up in ritual without proper sight of what was most important. You could say they had a heart issue. They had left their first love. It's like they had moved on from this honeymoon phase. For those of you that have been married, you have that honeymoon phase, right? Those first few months, first few years where you think to yourself, man, can it get any better than this? Never going to argue. Never going to have a hardship. Never going to have a challenge. This is the best. But then you go from that honeymoon phase. And if you're not careful, you just start to do the motions, right? You wake up in the morning, you get ready, you go to work, you come home, you have dinner. And before you know it, days and weeks have gone by without ever actually checking in with one another in your marriage. Without ever actually asking the question of, well, how are we actually doing as a couple? This is exactly what they were saying was happening between them and Christ. Is He was there. He was in the midst of his people and yet they had kind of given up. They were doing all the work, they were doing all the motions, but they didn't have the love as the driver any longer. Giving, they were giving Jesus what was expected rather than giving him what he deserved, what he was worthy of. They had lost this vital love relationship with him. And with that will come inevitably indifference, apathy, a lack of desire to pursue him. So despite this church being an active church, a church that is filled with truth, they've fallen into a sort of depression, a sort of area where this love, this love that they had at first had been lost. It's like they left it, the most important thing on the floor. That first love, that love when they had first experienced the grace just poured out upon them. Do you remember that? Do you remember the day when, the day or the weeks when you first knew the Lord? I'm not looking for a specific date, but if you just remember that early time in your faith, you were so passionate, you just couldn't help but talk about Christ all the time because it was so amazing to you that where you were to where you are today has changed so much. Everything that you did now was a driving factor towards that. You wanted people to hear about the love that you had for him because of the grace that had been shown to you. And so the questions for me or for me and for you today then is where are you? Have you abandoned the love that you had at first? Do you find yourself struggling to truly respond in love to Christ and you're just doing things out of obedience? Doing things maybe even out of fear because you know what it'll mean if you don't do it. You were once like the magicians, right? You were willing to burn your books, turn from every wicked thing and now you find yourself just not really wanting to battle as much. You were once filled with passion and zeal and now you find yourself just kind of going through the day-to-days. Well, I'll pray when I go to eat and I'll maybe say a prayer when I wake up and go to bed, but communing with the Lord is just 
It's tiring for me. It's hard. Where are you at? Examine yourself today. Have you lost the love that you had at first? Seems hopeless almost, doesn't it? To hear that, to think about this, to say, well, how do I rekindle that? How do I get that back? It was great when I first experienced it because I had put to death all of my sin and I turned this way and I was, everything seemed great. So how do I get that back? Well, Christ gives us a way out. And it's by his grace, right, that we can do any of this anyways. And so look at verse 5 with me on our next point, the correction. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove from your lampstand, or remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Notice there's a way out. So frequently when we are experiencing a sense of this lost love or a sense of spiritual depression, it seems like there's just no way out. We think, how do we get out of this? How do I get from this rut that I'm in? I keep doing these motions, but I just don't know how to get out of that. And he says, here's the very recipe of what you need. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, look back upon, hold on to it, recall it. Something that's supposed to be ongoing, it's an active imperative. It's like what we saw in lots of Second Timothy, he's saying, this is what you need to do. Look back, remember. Something that you need to do continually. But what are you to remember? Not the good. He says, remember from where you have fallen. It's not just looking back and saying, well, let me look at some random time. He says, look at your peak. Look at the time where you were at your top. When you felt that grace just being poured out upon you and all you could do was say, Lord, I love you. I love you. I love you. The Ephesians had fallen from their love. Fallen from the love that they had at first. They had forgotten the passionate start that had led them to the place they are in today. They knew the challenges that they faced day to day and it was hard. They had lost this love that they had at the beginning. And the writing is clear. It says, look back. There's so many times in the scriptures where it says, don't look back, right? He says to Law and his wife, don't look back, lest you desire that again. Don't look back at what was. Look at who you are now. But here he says, when you're losing it, when you're losing this love that you had at first, look back on it. Remember the zeal and the passion that you've left. Look at what you've felt before and look at where you are today. Remember the love that you had when you first experienced that grace poured out upon you. Remember the ministry that you were proceeding in when you first were saved. As many of you, I'm sure, experienced when you were first saved, and as I know myself, you're probably ill-equipped to go out and Share the gospel. You were probably ill-equipped to go out and try and disciple someone, even though many of us were probably put in positions where we were ill-equipped. And yet, he says, remember that passion. Remember the zeal that you have. You've been built up now. Remember the passion that led you to go out. That des- This gave you this desire to go forth, to serve him, to show your love for him. Remember how you felt when all you could do was cling to Christ. 
All you wanted was him. Remember the love you had in the beginning. Friends, the Lord says it clearly here. If the Ephesians and in turn us don't look back and see from where we have fallen, we cannot know how desperate we truly are. We can't do what exactly he says next. He says, repent. You must look back. You must see it to be able to repent. He says, deliberate rejection, right, of sin, repentance. The irony of the church right here is that they've been so caught up with purity in doctrine. They've been so caught up with addressing false teaching. They've been so caught up with doing all of the works. And Christ is saying, repent. It almost seems like you want to scratch your head and say, well, what have I been doing this whole time then? He says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember the love you had. Now repent. Turn to me in repentance. What was their sin that they had left their love? Behind, They left it on the floor. Remember, the, remember Christ calls a believer in Matthew 22. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus says, Have you done that? Repent. You've left your love behind. The love that you had at first. So remember and repent. Knowing that repentance would bring a change of heart by the grace of God. Acknowledging their sin and turning from it would lead to a correction in the heart and would impact every other aspect of what they were doing. It would no longer be just doing the motions. It would be doing it out of a love for Him. And notice what he says. Repeat. He says, and do the works you did at first. You have the three R's that many have pulled out from this. Remember, repent, and repeat. He doesn't just say, rekindle the love that you had at first. He doesn't just look at you and say, well, better strike that love back up. Find the love and make it happen. No, he says, do what you did at first. Do what the works that you did at first that will rekindle your love. That will bring that love back. And he starts at the very place where we all started, repentance. That is the very first point. It says, repent, because when you repent and you experience the grace, naturally love is the response. Experiencing and realizing your desperate need for the Savior just is our natural response. Love in our culture today is such an emotional thing. We see everywhere talking about love and love being this emotion. And our culture teaches, love something until you don't. And when you don't, get rid of it. It doesn't matter if it's an animal. It doesn't matter if it's a dog or a cat or your very marriage. It says you don't love them anymore. We'll just give up and walk away. However, love biblically is not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. It's what you do. It's an action. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Christ doesn't just does not just give us clarity to what those first works were, but he says, whatever it was, whatever you were doing, do it again. And it has to start with repentance. Go back to that. Go back to the very basics. Rather than religious actions that you're doing now, not saying that you have to stop those, not saying that you should stop fighting against false teaching and false doctrines, not saying you shouldn't continue to work and labor and toil, but get back to the basics. 
Come back with repentance and faith to the Savior. The one who will pour out his grace upon you. Come back in prayer and his word. Come back in fellowship with the local body of believers. Come back to worship the almighty God. Get back to the very beginning. Find that. Now you have all this knowledge that's been built up over your years of being under solid preaching. Finding all of this knowledge of hopeful study and just time and maturity. And that love is all the more powerful now. You see it now. It's just so much more potent because of everything that you know about who you are worshiping. Everything you know about what his word says. Everything that you know when you come before him in prayer, knowing that he is a God that is listening and answering you. Do what you did in the beginning. Get back to the basics. However, if you don't, he says to the Ephesians, there will be consequences. Not only just little things, but very tragic consequences. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Christ gives them a look at the punishment that awaited. This is what happens in pretty much all of the prophetic letters, all of the apocalyptic style letters. Is He says, here's what you are to do. If you don't do it, here's what will happen. Christ does that again for us here. He says, repent, remember, repent and repeat Find the love that you had at first. And if not, I will come to you. And I will remove your lampstand from its place. It's not a good place to be. What does it mean that he would remove their lampstand? Well, the word does not provide the exact details, but it does give us a couple of different things that could be possible. One, it could mean simply that the church would cease to exist. That whole church would just be done. His judgment would be poured out in some way and the church would be done. That's scary. But on a scarier point, one that I think is far more worrisome, Christ would not be obviously present with the church. Removing the lampstand means removing himself from it. Removing the light from it. The church would just go on doing all these motions and actions and deeds but not out of a true love for him. He would remove himself from it. He would just be participating in empty worship. Participating in a this false kind of religious action. It's a scary reality. Notice all of the works that they did, all of their efforts and their labors and their toils and their struggles, everything that they did He says, if you don't find the love that you had at first, the the church will cease to exist. I will remove the lampstand. It's all the more reason that it is so essential for each and every one of us to look inward and to ask the question, where are our hearts this morning, this week, every single day, every single minute? We need to be looking inward and saying, Lord, Search my heart. Penetrate it. Help me to dig out any of the garbage that's there. Our outward actions can be pointing to all of the right things. It can be pointing to all of the things that Christ would want us to do. But at the end of the day, he's saying, but where is your heart? 
What is the heart saying about you? And notice what he says for an end goal here. Look at our verse 7, the call. Not only that Christ would not remove the lampstand, but that the believer would be joined with him forever. Here, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's the same way that all of the letters in Revelation here close out. It's this exhortation, this notice to each of the individuals that would be hearing this. You have an ear? Listen up. He's been talking about the church, but now he says, this isn't just the church, this is you individual. Each one of you that can hear this, hear it. Listen up. Christ in in essence is saying, you have heard the word of your God, now respond accordingly. You know what will come if you don't do it, so respond accordingly. Heed what you have heard. And he says, having heard that, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers. Who are those? Who are those ones who would conquer? Well, it's all believers. All true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are the ones that will conquer. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory, the conquering, that has, that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you hear the victory in those words? Do you hear the conquering in those words? To the one who conquers, the one who has faith. Indeed, he will endure. And what is his reward? He says, I will grant you the heed of the tree of life. He's talking about true restoral. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 29 in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to turn back real quick and just read this for you. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. We see this tree. And this is the first mention of this tree of life. Chapter 2 and verse 9 of Genesis. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This same tree is just mentioned a page turnover in Genesis chapter 3 and 22 after the fall. And he says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And verse 23 shows us what he does. He says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. He sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Christ here is talking about utter restoral, complete restoral. He says, I will grant you to eat what I once forbade from you. I will give you what I once removed you from. What you were once just taken away from because you had sinned against me. 
against the Almighty God, I will now give to you to eat freely. Talk about an ultimate restoral. Talk about a gospel message right in those few words. Where Adam failed, where he was banished from the garden, Christ came and he lived the life that we could not. He died the death that we deserve. And his answer, by so doing, if we repent and believe in him, he says you can enter into the eternal kingdom, the paradise of God, and you can eat of the tree of life. What an incredible gift that is. You can be in the presence of God forever and eat from this tree of life, the one that you were once removed from, I will now give to you. Complete restoral from the damage done in the garden. Being in perfect communion with the Father again. Being restored to Him again. To live in His paradise again. It's the same message that Christ tells to the thief, right? He says, on this day, you will be with me in paradise. The paradise of the Father. The paradise of God where we are all together. And He says, you will eat of this tree of life. And so as we close, I would like to ask you two questions and give you a little encouragement again. Do you have a heart issue? Have you lost the love that you had at first? If you answered yes, there is a problem. Don't get me wrong. You have a problem here. There's something wrong. But there's not one without a solution. Remember where you came from. And as you do so, as you recall this, Take a true, realistic inventory of where you are today. Don't hide anything before the Father, for Christ is already seeing into your heart. So don't hide it. Open up and say, where am I truly? Repent. And do the works you did at first. Believer, do what you did at first. Come in repentance and faith before the one who saves. For the one who pours out his grace upon you. Experience that grace afresh and anew. And then you can respond in this love that you had at first. Repeat what you did in the beginning. And see how your actions impact and affect your feelings. Pursue him diligently. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Remember, believer, Christ is present. He sees into your heart. He penetrates through every outer shell and every outer layer. And he sees the deed, sees where you truly are. So seek him out. Seek him out and ask him, Lord, penetrate my heart. Help me to see because I can't all the time. I don't always know. Show me so that I might repent and turn to you. And finally, remember, believer, one day Christ will grant you to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God as you enjoy him forever. What a glorious hope we have there. May that be just another reason for our diligent pursuit of not only knowing God, but being with him, pursuing him, speaking with him, praying to him. And may it be a motivator for maintaining the love that we had at first. Let us close in prayer.